Lesson 5 for October 28 through to November 3, ready for teaching on Sabbath, November 4. The Faith of Abraham. Sabbath afternoon, October 28. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that Paul wrote so much that explained your love for us. And as we delve deeper into the book of Romans this week, we pray that we may not just see the history, but that we will also see your love expressed to us in the death of your Son, Jesus Christ. Bless us each one in our own personal lives and those who relate to us or we relate to as well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our memory text this week is Romans chapter 3 and verse 31. Do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid. Yea, we establish the law. Let's read that again. Romans three thirty-one. Do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid. Yea, we establish the law. In many ways, Romans chapter 4 gets to the foundation of the biblical doctrine of salvation by faith alone and to the heart of what began the Reformation. Indeed, 500 years ago this week, it all began with Luther and faithful Protestants have never looked back. By using Abraham, the paragon of holiness and virtue, as an example of a person who needed to be saved by grace without the deeds of the law, Paul was clear. If Abraham's works and law-keeping didn't justify him before God, what hope do we have? If it had to be by grace with Abraham, it has to be the same with everyone else, Jews and Gentiles. In Romans chapter 4, Paul reveals three major stages in the plan of salvation. 1. The promise of divine blessing, the promise of grace. 2. The human response to that promise, the response of faith. And three, the divine pronouncement of righteousness credited to those who believe, justification. That's how it worked with Abraham, and that's how it works with us. It is crucial to remember that for Paul, salvation is by grace. It's something that is given to us, however undeserving we are. If we deserved it, then we'd be owed it. And if we're owed it, it's a debt and not a gift. And for beings corrupted and fallen as we are, salvation has to be a gift. To prove his point about salvation by faith alone, Paul quotes Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6 like this, Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. He is justification by faith in the first book of the Bible. Sunday, October 29, The Law Question. Read Romans chapter 3 verse 31. What's Paul's point here? Why is this point important to us as Adventists? Romans 3.31. Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. 
In this passage, Paul states emphatically that faith does not make void God's law. But even those who kept the law, even the entire Old Testament corpus of law, were never saved by it. The religion of the Old Testament, as that of the New, was always one of God's grace given to sinners by faith. Question, read Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through to 8. How does this show that, even in the Old Testament, salvation was by faith and not by works of the law? Romans 4, beginning at verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not accounted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness, just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imparts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. According to this Old Testament narrative, Abraham was accounted righteous because he believed God. Therefore, the Old Testament itself teaches righteousness by faith. Hence, any implication that faith makes void or the Greek katagio, renders useless or invalidates, the law is false. Salvation by faith is very much part of the Old Testament. Grace is taught all the way through it. What, for instance, was the entire sanctuary ritual, if not a representation of how sinners are saved, not by their own works, but by the death of a substitute in their stead? Also, what else can explain how David was forgiven after the sordid affair with Bathsheba? Certainly it wasn't law-keeping that saved him, for he violated so many principles of the law that it condemned him on numerous accounts. If David were to be saved by the law, then David would not be saved at all. Paul sets forth David's restoration to divine favour as an example of justification by faith. Forgiveness was an act of God's grace. Here, then, is another example from the Old Testament of righteousness by faith. In fact, however legalistic many in ancient Israel became, the Jewish religion was about a religion of grace. Legalism was a perversion of it, not its foundation. And so to finish today, dwell for a few minutes on David's sin and restoration. What hope can you draw from that sad story for yourself? Is there a lesson here about how we in the church should treat those who have fallen? Let's have a look. We first of all go to Second Samuel chapter 11, and beginning at verse 1, it says, It happened in the spring of the year, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him, and all Israel, and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David remained behind at Jerusalem. 
Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. So David sent and inquired after the woman, and someone said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messages and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her, for she was cleansed from her impurity, and she returned to her house. And the woman conceived. So she sent and told David, and said, I am with child. Then David sent to Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah had come to him, David asked how Joab was doing, and how the people were doing, and how the war prospered. And David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah departed from the king's house, and a gift of food from the king followed him. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord, and did not go down to his house. So when they told David, saying, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Did you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. And so the story continues, and Uriah is sent back to the front, and David gives a message to some of his men that they should retreat and leave Uriah to be killed. And then in chapter 12 of Second Samuel, Nathan tells a parable, and David confesses to his sin. David became very angry, actually, in verse 5. So David's anger was greatly aroused against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall die, and he shall restore fourfold for the lamb, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping, and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword, you have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me, and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. What hope can you draw from the sad story? Well, if we look in Psalm 51, we read, and this is a prayer of repentance. It's a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him, after he'd gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. 
Against you, you only, have I sinned, and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak, and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness, that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your way, and sinners shall be converted to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall show forth your praise. For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Do good in your good pleasure to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness. With burnt offering and whole burnt offering, then they shall offer bulls on your altar. Monday, October 30. Debt or Grace? The issue Paul is dealing with here is much more than just theology. It gets to the heart and soul of salvation and of our relationship to God. If one believes that he or she must earn acceptance, then he or she must reach a certain standard of holiness before being justified and forgiven then how natural to turn inward and to look to oneself and one's deeds. Religion can become exceedingly self-centred, about the last thing anyone needs. In contrast, if one grasps the great news that justification is a gift from God, totally unmerited and undeserved, how much easier and more natural is it for that person to turn his or her focus on God's love and mercy instead of on self? And, in the end, who's more likely to reflect the love and character of God? The one self-absorbed, or the one God-absorbed? Question. Read Romans chapter 4, verses 6 through to 8. How does Paul expand here on the theme of justification by faith? Romans 4, beginning at verse 6. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works... Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Ellen White writes in Selected Messages, Book 1, page 215, The sinner must come in faith to Christ, take hold of his merits, lay his sins upon the sin-bearer, and receive his pardon. 
It was for this cause that Christ came into the world. Thus the righteousness of Christ is imputed to the repenting, believing sinner. He becomes a member of the royal family. End of quote. Paul then continues explaining that salvation by faith is not only for the Jews, but for the Gentiles as well. We continue in Romans chapter 4 and beginning at verse 9. Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only, or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it counted while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also and the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of the faith which our father Abraham had, while still uncircumcised. In fact, if you want to get technical about it, Abraham wasn't Jewish. He came from a pagan ancestry, as we read in Joshua 24, verse 2. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Your fathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nahor, dwelt on the other side of the river in old times, and they served other gods. The Gentile-Jewish distinction didn't exist in his time. When Abraham was justified, as we read in Genesis 15, verse 6, he was not even circumcised. Thus, Abraham became the father of both the uncircumcised and the circumcised, as well as a great example for Paul to use in order to make his point about the universality of salvation. Christ's death was for everyone, regardless of race or nationality, as we read in Hebrews 2 verse 9. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honour, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. And so to finish today, considering the universality of the cross, considering what the cross tells us about the worth of every human being, why is racial or ethnic or national prejudice such a horrible thing? How can we learn to recognize the existence of prejudice in ourselves and through God's grace purge it from our minds? Tuesday, October 31, The Promise It was 500 years ago this day that Martin Luther hung his 95 theses on the door of the Wittenberg Church. How fascinating that the subject for today also gets right to the heart of salvation by faith. 
In Romans chapter 4 verse 13, promise and law are contrasted as we read. For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Paul is seeking to establish an Old Testament background for his teachings of righteousness by faith. He finds an example in Abraham, whom all the Jews accepted as their ancestor. Acceptance or justification had come to Abraham quite apart from law. God made a promise to Abraham that he was to be heir of the world. Abraham believed this promise, that is, he accepted the role that it implied. As a result, God accepted him and worked through him to save the world. This remains a powerful example of how grace was operating in the Old Testament, which is no doubt why Paul used it. Question, read Romans chapter 4, verses 14 through to 17. How does Paul here continue showing how salvation by faith was central to the Old Testament? And we're also going to look at Galatians chapter 3, verses 7 through to 9. But first of all, Romans 4, verses 14 to 17. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect, because the law brings about wrath. For where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. In the presence of him whom he believed, God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. And Galatians 3, 7-9, Therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. As we said in the beginning, it's important to remember to whom Paul is writing. These Jewish believers were immersed in Old Testament law, and many had come to believe that their salvation rested on how well they kept the law, even though that was not what the Old Testament taught. In seeking to remedy this misconception, Paul argues that Abraham, even prior to the law of Sinai, receives the promises not by works of the law, which would have been hard, since the law, the whole Torah, and ceremonial system was not in place yet, but by faith. If Paul is referring here to the moral law exclusively, which existed in principle even before Sinai, the point remains the same, perhaps even more so. Seeking to receive God's promises through the law, he says, makes faith void, even useless. Those are strong words, but his point is that faith saves and the law condemns. He's trying to teach about the futility of seeking salvation through the very thing that leads to condemnation. We all, Jew and Gentile, have violated the law, and hence we all need the same thing as Abraham did. 
the saving righteousness of Jesus, credited to us by faith, the truth that ultimately led to the Protestant Reformation. Wednesday, November 1. Law and Faith As we saw yesterday, Paul showed that God's dealings with Abraham proved that salvation comes through the promise of grace and not through law. Therefore, if the Jews wished to be saved, they would have to abandon trust in their works for salvation and accept the Abrahamic promise now fulfilled in the coming of the Messiah. It's the same, really, for everyone— Jew or Gentile, who thinks that their good works, their good deeds, are all that it takes to make them right with God. In the book The Desire of Ages, written by Ellen White, pages 35 and 36, we read, The principle that man can save himself by his own works lay at the foundation of every heathen religion. Wherever it is held, men have no barrier against sin. End of quote. And that brings the question, what does this mean? Why does the idea that we can save ourselves through our works leave us so open to sin? And that brings us to our next question. How did Paul explain the relationship between law and faith in Galatians chapter 3, verses 21 to 23? Beginning at verse 21, Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the scripture has confined all under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. If there had been a law that could impart light, it certainly would have been God's law. And yet Paul says that no law can give life, not even God's, because all have violated that law and so all are condemned by it. But the promise of faith, more fully revealed through Christ, frees all who believe from being under the law, that is, from being condemned and burdened by trying to earn salvation through it. The law becomes a burden when it's presented without faith, without grace, because without faith, without grace, without the righteousness that comes by faith, being under the law means being under the burden and the condemnation of sin. And so to finish today, how central is righteousness by faith to your walk with God? That is, What can you do to make sure it doesn't get blurred by other aspects of truth to the point where you lose sight of this crucial teaching? After all, what good are these other teachings without this one? Thursday, November 2, The Law and Sin. 
We often hear people say that in the New Covenant the law has been abolished, and then they proceed to quote texts that they believe prove that point. The logic behind that statement, however, isn't quite sound, nor is the theology. Question. Read 1 John chapter 2 verses 3 to 6 and chapter 3 verse 4 and Romans chapter 3 and verse 20. What do these texts tell us about the relationship between law and sin? First of all, 1 John chapter 2 verses 3 to 6. Now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walks. And First John chapter 3 and verse 4. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. In Romans 3, verse 20, Therefore by the deeds of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. A few hundred years ago, Irish writer Jonathan Swift wrote, But will any man say that if the words drinking, cheating, lying, stealing were by act of Parliament ejected out of the English tongue and dictionaries, we should all wake up next morning temperate, honest and just and lovers of truth? Is this a fair consequence? And that's page 205 from A Modest Proposal and Other Satires. In the same way, if God's law has been abolished, then why are lying, murder and stealing still sinful or wrong? If God's law has been changed, then the definition of sin must be changed too. Or, if God's law was done away with, then sin must be as well. And who believes that? Let's have a look at 1 John 1, verses 7 through to 10. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. And James 1 verses 14 and 15, For each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. In the New Testament, both the law and the gospel appear. The law shows what sin is. The gospel points to the remedy for that sin, which is the death and resurrection of Jesus. If there is no law, there is no sin. And so, what are we saved from? Only in the context of the law and its continued validity does the gospel make sense. We often hear that the cross nullified the law. That's rather ironic, because the cross shows that the law can't be abrogated or changed. If God didn't abrogate or even change the law before Christ died on the cross, why do it after? 
Why not get rid of the law after humanity sinned and thus spare humanity the legal punishment that violation of the law brings? That way, Jesus never would have had to die. Jesus' death shows that if the law could have been changed or abrogated, it should have been done before, not after the cross. Thus, nothing shows the continued validity of the law more than does the death of Jesus, a death that occurred precisely because the law couldn't be changed. If the law could have been changed to meet us in our fallen condition, wouldn't that have been a better solution to the problem of sin than Jesus having to die? And so to finish today, if there were no divine law against adultery, would the act cause any less pain and hurt than it does now to those who are victims of it? How does your answer help you understand why God's law is still in effect? What has been your own experience with the consequences of violating God's law? Friday, November 3. Today we have two quotes to read. The first is from Martin Luther, from his Commentary on Romans, page 82. To him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. The Apostle here explains the quoted passage, Genesis 15, verses 4 to 6, to conclude and prove from it that justification is by faith and not by works. This he does, first of all, by explaining the meaning of the words, It was counted unto him for righteousness. These words explain that God receives sinners by grace, and not because of their works. And the second is from the Advent Review and Sabbath Herald, where Ellen White wrote on the 3rd of September 1889, If Satan can succeed in leading man to place value upon his own work or works, of merit and righteousness, he knows that he can overcome him by his temptations and make him his victim and prey. Strike the doorposts with the blood of Calvary's lamb and you are safe. End of quote. And that brings us to our four discussion questions for this week. One, why is it so important to understand salvation by faith alone without the deeds of the law? What kind of errors can that knowledge protect us from? What dangers await those who lose sight of this crucial biblical teaching? 2. What other reasons can you give for the continued validity of God's law, even though we understand that the law and obedience to it are not what saves us? And 3. The basic issue at the core of the Reformation is, how are we saved? What are ways in which we can openly and forthrightly talk about the difference between Protestants and Catholics on this important topic, while not making personal attacks on anyone? And for, as justified sinners, we have been made the recipients of grace and undeserved favour from God, against whom we have sinned. How should this fact impact how we deal with others? How full of grace and favour are we toward those who have wronged us and don't really deserve our grace and favour? 
Inside Story. Our mission story this week is titled From Mafia Men to God's Messengers, Part 1. Although his grandfather was an imam and many relatives were Muslims, Igor had a secular upbringing. Excelling in sports, he soon became a leader, respected and feared by the other boys on the street. That leadership, respect and fear followed Igor into adulthood, where he became highly involved in the mafia. Big guns, big money and big deals became an integral part of his life. But, in spite of the thrills and excitement his fast life was delivering, Igor felt that something was missing. There was a hole that he just couldn't seem to fill, so he went searching. First, out of curiosity, he visited the Hare Krishna people. Then he went to the Russian Orthodox Church and then to the mosque. But still Igor didn't find the elusive something. One day, a friend told Igor that he knew a man who owned a Bible. Intrigued, Igor wanted to know more, so the friend put the two in touch. Do you know, the Bible owner asked Igor, that in the Bible you can read about unclean foods and how you aren't allowed to eat pork? This was new to Igor. He thought only the Koran taught such things. Over the next few months, Igor called this believer, who also always patiently explained things from the Bible numerous times. Finally, the believer invited Igor to attend church with him. I'll never visit your church, Igor rudely responded. But the Bible believer didn't lose heart and continued keeping in contact with this tough mafia man. Six months later, he again invited Igor to visit his church, and this time Igor accepted. On Sabbath, Igor got into his car. After following his usual routine of checking for any hidden explosive devices, and drove to the church. The church group met in a small rented facility that didn't look like much. Nevertheless, Igor felt drawn to the place. Some church members eyed the mafia man with suspicion, but Igor continued attending. As he learned more from the Bible, Igor compared it with the Koran. I was fairly well acquainted with history, Igor recalled, and I could compare the teachings of the two books. Eventually, it was the truth of the Bible that won me over. Before his baptism, Igor studied the Bible with the Seventh-day Adventist pastor, peppering him with questions during each meeting. Then a prominent evangelist came to Kazan, and at the end of these meetings, Igor was baptized at the age of 35. When I was baptized, I understood that I could no longer take part in things that happened on the streets. But even though I didn't do those bad things anymore, I was still a hooligan, Igor admits. And this story will be continued in next week's Inside Story. This lesson has been read by Dr. Percy Harold in the studios of Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired. It is brought to you by the Sabbath School Department and through the services of Hope Channel. Remember, God is always faithful.